well, will be uh, beat down the pain, but as soon as he got home and it wore off, he, yeah. he uh, yep. reverted yep. into it. What he said was he had pain, rather die. Yeah, God. Oh, God. You know, technology is a wonderful thing, but um, you hear these horror stories of people going to hospitals and dying. Yeah, well. Should I help yourself. I'm Bob Alexander. Jeff, you're right. Jeff, help yourself with you. Help yourself. Yeah, get everything. It's also, it's also, I guess, on the esophagus side. You might want to sit between these two beautiful women at this table and look on if you, because it doesn't look like you have a book. Both of them are in real trouble tonight. I hope you know that that was said in humor. Okay. No, I mean, I mean the note. I mean the note you got. Literally. Yes, of course, back in those days, everything was radiation. A terrible, terrible solution to it. Can we? Anybody else for prayer requests? See, an aunt who's what? She had a mastectomy, so she's cancers. Uh, so she's yeah. Well, What's her name? Beautiful lady, uh, Joan. Joan. Yes. And it's Jesse. Yes. Jeff. Jeff. Sorry, Jeff. Can you introduce yourself to everybody? Oh, sure. Um, I'm Jeff Sherhart, and my wife's name is Lisa. We have four kids. We've been Christians here since '05, I guess, about 12 years. Originally from San Antonio. And uh, my oldest is at Franciscan, and actually you, you'll read all about us if you read the uh, that newsletter next, <laughs> in March. Yeah, they're uh, yeah. So like I just wrote it tonight, and my wife is like, no, you're not going to say that. I'm like, come on, just do a little bit different. Change <laughs> up a little bit, put a little bit of humor in there. So. It, so I'll just leave you with that. You can read it. So. You do a newsletter for? Uh, no, it's for the Great parish. Point. What do they call it? The Grapevine. Uh, oh, here? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a quarterly. Every <coughs> quarter, I think. So yeah. they ask us if we. It's called Spotlight on the Family. We do one or two families every quarter, so they ask us if we would um, answer these questions. So I answer. What brings you here now? Um, you know what? I have to admit, I'm not even sure what. Everything that we're covered is, but I knew it was some education I love, just, you know, I love learning. You were tracing the order. What? So, yeah. I, mean, well, I didn't even hear. What, she, what did you say? Women, they said, what did she say? They, they said, you sit, yeah, they said, show up and you get to sit between two. Oh, are you guys friends? No. Oh. No, we are now. He was Jeff, Jeff is my neighbor. Oh. We live in the same neighborhood. Oh. Don't yes, we, Jeff? They live right around, the, they live right around the corner from us. So, well, if if you've if you've not had any experience with the people you're surrounded by tonight, don't feel bad about finding another table next week. If you can. everybody everybody will understand. That goes both ways. You probably won't invite. Probably all this changes. No one we're meeting. Can't sit at this table. He says I'm the class trouble. She shoots spitballs, so that's why. <laughs> Let's start. Let's Is this start. what you're reading tonight? Sorry, no, we're doing dry selvages. Does everybody have a copy of dry selvages? Uh, um. <sighs> 
Ball. Dry Sauvages. Jeff, I'm going to say prayers and then I'll take a second just to give you a just a quick yeah, just a brief sense of what we do. Listen, leave it if you don't have it. If um, I'll, um, you can hear it, it's it's just as well to listen. And let's start. Let's start, Doc. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, by the way, um, um, at Mass this morning, Father came out in a purple robe and um, told everybody, um, in case they were surprised, why he was doing that, because it's not, we're not in Advent and we're not at Lent yet. It's the anniversary of Roe Wade today, and um, I think the Church has asked us in unity as a church to mourn. Um, Father's homily, I, you, you know my admiration for him, how much I admire him. It, it, it was one of those, every once in a while, I, I, I go to him often and thank him for the homilies, that, and sometimes I just say it was a special grace, and it was like that this morning. He began by saying, so many of the arguments that are in favor of Roe are just emotional arguments. They really are. And he, I'm, I'm, I wish he were here and you could hear him because it's part of a whole and I'm, it, this is not the place to do it. But his opening comment was something like this, that um, the arguments in support of it were emotional arguments. A woman is raped or whatever happens to her that, or she's in unfortunate circumstances. He said, um, but the answer to that fact cannot be the murder of another human being. Killing another person to... Um, to answer a horrible act, let's say it was rape, can't justify it. I mean, and that's a hard line you know, the world doesn't know. But it was a wonderful homily, but just because I want to say something to that in our prayer, just he asked everybody to see it as a day of mourning and, and to do something in, in the spirit of mourning, to give up meal. It's evening, the day's over, but carry it with you through the evening and maybe even possibly tomorrow, actually out into the world, because that's, I think that's what he was hoping for. Anyway, thank you for the gift of yourself at the Mass this morning, for Father's words, your words to us, and your presence with us through this day. Um, we carry a sorrow in our hearts for um, the laws we live under, like slavery a century ago, um, so divisive. Um, they make legal and reasonable something that's contrary to your own laws. No law that we make that does that will ever be good, can ever have a good end. Um, we offer our sorrow um, and I hope in a spirit of contrition for what we carry, what we've done and what we've not done to answer it. Help our country come to, um, together again um, to find you, I mean, whatever way it's lost its way. Um, I ask a special blessing on um, Joan. Um, this is recovering from surgery, yes? Right. Yeah. Help her in her recovery. Um, keep her spirits up. Um, let the, um, all that the team of people who work with her do um, be in the spirit of a genuine wisdom. 
And whatever her struggles are, let her find in them an occasion for growing closer to you, uh, particularly where there's suffering. I ask the same for Jesse, um, particularly where the pain's severe. Um, help him somewhere to locate himself on your cross, to, to know that there is some good there if he will give himself to it in the right way. Hard to do for all of us. Help each one of us to come to that wherever we face sorrows. Um, a blessing too on Tracy and on Madison um, for the work that they're doing, particularly for Tracy, that um, whatever way she can be strengthened in the hope of you, she will bring more to that young girl. And ask a special blessing on Christopher and Kayla and their struggles. And now, um, more immediately for Suzanne and me and our family, um, um, because Kayla and the kids are here and it makes for certain difficulties. Um, help us in all that we do um, to stay with you, to have the courage to do hard things. Um, we offer all of these prayers, no, and uh, um, offer or ask for your help in all that we do together as this group, that whatever we learn here, we live. We take it to the world and make it real in our own lives, with each other and um, where we meet opposition in the world. Um, help us to always bring your kingdom there so that people will know your kingdom through us. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Jeff, just briefly, because we got a lot to do, and I don't want to. Um, um, if, if you want, um, give you an email tonight, or, or like if you can get his email, and I'll give you ours. If you, um, we can make it easier by that. Yeah. I'll catch up. But what we've done? Oh no! Well, good luck on that. <laughs> we started with the Iliad, and we're with Faulkner right now. Um, um, what we. The inspiration for this course came at a time when Jared was here and doing a literature course, and he was doing with Dick. And I get worried about great works of literature because my own experience is that very often people don't see just how much is there. And I believe there's a lot to Moby Dick that's actually prophetic. It's a Jonah figure speaking to us. So I went to Jared and asked if he needed help or something, or I'd be glad to, to do something. And, the course started. The, the nature of the course is to look at literature to see if we can find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. That was true for the ancient epics. Um, anybody who's read them will see that there's a parousia quality to the end of them, the second coming, the return of the king, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, the, the king returning and bringing judgment and glory and um, a divine sanction. It's just amazing when you read those books. <laughs> when you get out of a secular world and the way that they teach them and read the books for what's there. You know. It's funny because I've never read Moby Dick, but just about a couple weeks ago, I was just, I forgot how I came across something with it. I was like, gosh, I really want to read that. So yeah. it's interesting that anyway, we've done that. We've started there and come forward. Um, we were, um, I think we were going to end with maybe Moby Dick or Faulkner, I can't remember, maybe even Dante. The Renaissance, or the end of the Middle Ages with Dante and the Renaissance with Shakespeare was a sort of ending point, but 
the group had gotten larger and were interested in, um, so we moved forward into the modern world with, with Melville and now, or I mean uh, Faulkner. Um, so that's what we're doing. Um, the, the concern for all of us is to read, to see if we learn something about Christ and about our faith reading these works. Um, we start every class with a prayer and a lyric poem. And the reason for the lyric is that, is, well, there's two, two reasons. One is that I, I'm trying to keep alive um, the musical aspect of poetry because it's true for all the poetry we're reading, even a novel. The ancient epics were written in meter, so there was a musical aspect. You couldn't miss it. That's not true of modern novel. It's one of the characteristics of the modern novel. It's not put the meter. But I believe that there's a, an order and a harmony. It's more diffuse, but it's there even in the novel. So I read lyrics just to keep that alive. And, and all of the lyrics are, are belong to the course in the sense that every one of them is chosen because they show Christ in some way. So they just reinforce our work. But they do it in a page or two. You know. So we get to Elliot. Um, that's basically it. Um, I keep threatening everybody with quizzes. I haven't <laughs> given one yet. But Are these classes always on Monday at this time? Monday and Friday morning. <coughs> it's the same class. It's just a different group. Oh, okay. So people who can't, there's a number of people who come in the evening who aren't here. Who usually are, Monday evenings are not good for it, but yeah. this week it was good. So. Okay, let's, let's start. The, for the longest time I'd wanted to do T.S. Eliot because Eliot is, I think, the greatest Christian poet of the modern world, the 20th century. And he's difficult to read because of that fact, because he's writing for an audience that he knows is non-Christian and in lots of ways anti-Christian. So, but to, to do that required a long commitment because most of his poems are too long to read in an, in an evening. I've, we've done, uh, I think we've done a couple of short, something short from him. I don't know if we did, um, we did The Journey of the Magi, I think. It's a Christmas poem. It's a dark, dark poem. But anyway, I, I finally decided to risk it. We're doing the four quartets, even though they're, um, it takes roughly four or five weeks to go through one of the quartets, and there's four of them, because it, it's too long to read in an evening. So tonight, let's, let's pick up. Um, I want to do this very, very quickly um, because we just, there's so much in, that's going on in the town that I want to get to. Remember, I don't, want, I don't want to take much time, but remember, every one of the quartets has as its subject one, one of the four basic elements, air, fire, earth, water. They're not always obvious. In some ways, they're... Um, implied and oblique, but, but they're there. But at the, at the center of every one of those quartets is this idea of the still point that he got from Dante. Um, for those of you who did it, remember when Dante got to the back of the universe and he looked down at the center of the universe, the center of the universe was described from two perspectives. One was the material perspective, because in terms of matter, the Earth was at the center. He was still into the Ptolemaic scheme. The Earth was at the center with all the planets revolving around it until you got to the prima mobile, which was moving so fast you couldn't see it. it. 
The prima mobile is the first sphere. It's invisible, it's transparent. It's the one that sets all the other planets in motion. The circling of those planets and their different speeds and orders produced what everybody in that ancient Christian world understood as the music of the spheres. Every planet was um, governed by an, a different order of angels. All the angelic angels were um, oversaw the, um, the ordering of those planets. And um, that music could not be heard with our senses. It could only be intellected. And the mystics talk about it. Dante knows that it. it's part of the divine comedy. Um, um, that still point, oh wait, so that's the material still point. If you look down from outside the back of the universe to the center of it, from a spiritual standpoint, what you saw was God. It was a still point moving so fast that it was standing still. And all of the other planets revolved around it at appropriate speeds proportionally. Eliot took that concept and it's one of the major, probably the, the most important motif image in the whole of the quartets. We've already gone through it. We've seen that the, that, that notion of the still point is present almost everywhere. Scientists find it. Artists find it. It's at the center of every work of art. This, um, call it the, the intuition at the center of each work of art. Anyway, we, um, we've been watching him play themes on that in each one of the quartets. Each one of the quartets is divided into five sections. Each section plays a variation on that one theme. In Dry Sauvages, um, the central governing motif is the sea or water. Um, if I remember, I haven't read it, and so I should have read this before tonight, but um, I'm just going to read it and let it go so we can start. The Dry Sauvages. Um, the, the note that I have, I don't know if you guys have it on the sheet that I gave you. Dry Sauvages, presumably, the, the Trois. Um, Sauvages is a small group of rocks with a beacon off the northeast coast of Cape Ann, Massachusetts. Sauvages is pronounced to rhyme with assuages, assuages, salvages, so assuages, salvages. Groner is a whistling boy, okay? The dry salvages. I do not know much about gods, but I think that the river is a strong brown god sullen, untamed, and intractable. Patient to some degree, at first recognized as a frontier, useful, untrustworthy, as a conveyor of commerce. Then only a problem confronting the builder of bridges. The problem once solved, the brown god is almost forgotten by the dwellers in cities. Ever, however, implacable, keeping his seasons and rages, destroyer, reminder of what men choose to forget, I'm trusting everybody has seen the relevance of this. We think we can master nature um, and what Elliot is suggesting here that n nature will always reassert itself. Uh, we were not meant to master it um, the way the modern world has tried. Unhonored, unpropitiated by worshippers of the machine, but waiting, watching, and waiting. His rhythm was present in the nursery bedroom in the rank Alanth Elanthus of the April dooryard, in the smell of grapes on the autumn table, and the evening circle in the winter pastime. The river is within us, the sea is all about us, 
The sea is the land's edge, edge also, the granite into which it reaches, the beaches where it tosses its hints of earlier and other creation. The starfish, the horseshoe crab, the whale's backbone, the pools where it offers to our curiosity the more delicate algae, algae and the sea anemone. It tosses up our losses, the torn seine, the shattered lobster pot, the broken oar, and the gear of foreign dead men. The sea has many voices, many gods, and many voices. The salt is on the briar rose, the fog is in the fern trees. The sea howl and the sea yelp are different voices, often together heard. The wine in the rigging, the menace of caress of wave that breaks on water, the distant rote in the granite teeth, and the wailing warning from the approaching headland are all sea voices. And the heaving groaner rounded homeward and the seagull. And under the oppression of the silent fog, the tolling bell measures time, not our time, rung by the unhurried groundswell, a time older than the time of chronometer older and time counted by anxious, worried women lying awake, calculating the future, trying to unweave, unwind, unravel, and piece together the past and future. Between midnight and dawn, when the past is all deception, the future, futureless, before the morning watch when time stops and time is never ending, and the ground swell that is and was from the beginning clangs the bell. You know, we keep talking about this in-between time. We've seen it before, before and after. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. Remember, those are the opening lines of Bernd Norton. Think about the in-between times here. Piece together the past and the future between midnight and dawn when the past is all deception, the future futureless, before the morning watch when time stops and time is never ending. The ground swell that is and was from the beginning clangs the bell. It's always there. Okay, let's um, let's get to this. By the way, I'm, um, I just I wanted to thank you all again, and I'm saying that seriously. I've said that a couple of times to you. I, I know you're grateful for the work that we do, but when I um, got through writing my notes tonight, I I told you I just I was astonished at what I was seeing, and grateful to you guys again for for doing this so I could go back to it because there, each time I go back I see more and I know that I'm seeing some things here that I didn't see the last time I read Faulkner so um, I'm just grateful to you all. Okay, the great theme, this is just a quick review, the great theme of the book. We've been talking about the, the major theme is the rise of, the rise of Snopesism. I want to, I want to keep it that way for a minute but I'm going to add something today that will change that a little bit. Um, correlated with that is, as you know, a community beginning to take responsibility for evil. It didn't exist in the Hamlet. And um, I, we've talked about briefly in passing the parallel between what we read in the Hamlet and the Catholic Church in America. Um, and we talked about abortion. The Catholic world watched on, sort of innocently, giving away to it. Um, in the same way that the people in the Hamlet watched Flem do what he did. And in some sense, they were complicit in everything going on. It's one of the themes here. 
Um, we'll, if we see it from Gavin, we see it from Rat Ratliff and Chick. I'm going to read some passages that will make it concrete and more human. But we're watching a town that's complicit in an evil watch and observe while it's, while it's taking place and not doing anything. Gavin and Ratliff and Chick and um, um, what's the Chick's cousin? That, um, Gallon. Gallon are beginning to work together to be watchful and on guard and try to do something about it. So as we watch this evil um, spread, we're aware that something's happening to begin to take responsibility for it. And that's what the book is principally about, at least on the surface. We talked about the importance of the chivalric romance tradition, particularly as it's embodied in Gavin. And I want to go, I want to go back to that just for a second here. Um, remember that the chivalric tradition, as we inherited from the Middle Ages, um, entailed a, um, a reconciliation between the old pagan ideal of the warrior and the, the Christian ideal of a knight. Am I spelling that P A G? Is that mm -hmm. P? Yeah. 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 Remember in Achilles and Odysseus and Aeneas, um, we were shown images of an, um, a perfection that the natural man is capable of at great, at great cost, only with the help of the gods. Um, and wherever we see people turning away from the gods, uh, they push that possible perfection way. Achilles changed the honor code. Odysseus changed our notions of marriage, where a man and woman could love each other as human beings, not, not as things. Because we saw in the Iliad that the, I mean the, the fundamental flaw, flaw at the center of the Iliad was that men treated other men as objects, um, things to overcome in order to increase their own booty. And I've suggested over and over again that and that's no different than the modern world. I mean, stepping over everybody and using people as things to get ahead to make money. That's radically changed. That carries over into the Odyssey, men and women both. I mean, the, the tendency in the modern world is to look at the way men use women. What Homer makes really clear is that women are just as susceptible as men, but in a very different way. When the two come together, Odysseus and Penelope at the end, remember, Athena stops time. That, that marks a moment when the two of them are finally united, again, but completely different from who they were 20 years earlier when Odysseus went off to the war. He's had to learn to deal with all those feminine archetypes, and she's had to learn to deal with the worst sides of men. So what they bring together gives us an image of marriage that we don't find anywhere else in the book. Remember, the other two marriages are Menelaus with Helen, which is full of sorrows. They carry the past with them and um, Nestor and his wife, and they carry the past. One of the things that we're watching is that one of the things that gets in the way of marriages is that people will not let go of the past. They continue to live in the morning, the, the, the crimes, the sins, the sorrows. They will not come into the present. When Odysseus and Penelope do, Athena stops time. It's a different time. No, 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 none of the other couples in the story know that. Aeneas introduces this quality of what today we call pietas, piety. Um, it's a regard for a, 
a fellow man that makes the common good greater than individuals. Virgil disliked, even though the, the whole of the Aeneas is structured around these two books, he's critical of both of them all the time because he thinks the Greeks were too given to individualism, individual heroism. Virgil believed that a, a greater good was the, the common good, the good of everybody. And that was imaged in the city of Rome because it was in Rome that all the bigotries and racial hatreds were overcome to make it possible for all men to come together and live in the city. So it's a very, very different mentality. So each hero introduces, makes us aware of some potential in the human person to, to reach a kind of heroic perfection. There's no other way to put it. But the cost of it was always great, tremendously great. That's the idea of man that we inherited from the pagan world until Christ comes into the world here. And we've talked about the way in which all of these prepared for Christ because every one of them ends with the parousia action, the return of the king. Achilles as a king comes back. Hell breaks out everywhere. Odysseus comes home and kills the suitors and the maidservants. Odysseus has to go to war with all the warring tribes in Italy. So it, in some amazing way, it's prophetic of Christianity just off the borders. And I've asked this, I mean, I've made this statement again. How in the world did these poets do that? Where did that come from? I don't think that's an accident. And from the very beginning, remember, we lined this up with the Old Testament in various ways. I don't want to go through that right now, but we talked about how it corresponded and, and that the, the major um, theme that they have in common is a founding, a refounding of a people, a refounding of a people, a refounding, the founding of the Jews, the refounding, the re continual refounding, particularly under the covenants, the various covenants that God makes. Christ comes into the world and he, and he introduces something that the pagans could not have known, even though it seems to me it's intuited everywhere. And that is um, that, that God loved man enough to offer himself in atonement for all the disorders that he couldn't overcome on his own and made it clear that we will never overcome our disorders, no, how, no matter how perfect we are in a, in a natural sense, without him. And he offered the supernatural graces. Um, the natural graces were justice, fortitude, prudence, temperance. Those are things we're supposed to be practicing. He offered the supernatural graces, faith, hope, and charity. Those are gifts from God to, to try to help us in the church's language to become holy, to follow him, to do what he does. So he introduced a new element into this heroic code and it led to the Christian night. And those of you who have read King Arthur or the medieval songs and stories, you know that that was the ideal that, um, that got developed through the Middle Ages. If you see that, you know how important Dante is because Dante doesn't show us a, this heroic chivalric night. Remember, from the very beginning, he passes out over and over and over and over again. The last thing he can do is pull out a sword and a shield. I mean, he's ready to pass out. At, you know, a woman cries. When, remember when Francisca starts crying? He, he passes out, and he has, Virgil has to shake him a couple of times. So this, this idea of the Christian knight gets carried forward, but it's offset with this profound 
awareness on the part of men of his weakness, um, how much he needs God, that he can't do any of this on his own. It's just impossible to do. So that's what's handed down, and that's what we've got in our day um, with um, Quentin in Sound of the Fury and Gavin here. Okay. Now, last week I introduced, remember, um, a, a couple of a couple of important traditions that we have to be aware of. Petrarch followed Dante. Remembered, this is too much to go into God. Petrarch followed Dante. Dante was married, but the woman who was the greatest inspiration of his life was Beatrice. He loved her because he saw in her an image of the Trinity. And having seen that, he knew that he was called on to be virtuous himself. And we know how difficult that was because halfway up the Paradiso, we learned he was, he was on his way to being damned before he was saved, before Beatrice came to help him. So um, he loved Beatrice more than anybody. And what we find in, the, in what is clearly a, a, a Christ-like love between them, not, a, not an erotic love, a Christ-like love, is a, a love of God in the other and a willingness to live for that other person. And you know... Um, you know how, how that changes things because um, remember the, the Christian ideal of the chivalric knight generally is a knight shows his heroism by his willingness to give up his life for his liege, his lord, his king, or the woman he loves. So, um, so the, the power that's associated with a man in doing heroic deeds is offset against this authority that woman has over him, or the king. You get a variation on that in the middle, or at the end of the Purgatorio, because when Dante meets Beatrice, you remember, she scolds him mercilessly. He passes out again, he passes out. Um, lots of feminists don't like her. I mean, she just seems like a shrew. Um, they, they, don't have any, they just don't have any sense that she's come from God, and she's calling Dante to account for <laughs> the things he should have been doing that he hadn't been doing. So, so the ideal of romantic love that passes on to us from the pagan world and the Christian Middle Ages is rich and complex. Petrarch picks it up, and you remember that he tends to idealize Laura, crown. He looks at her as this unattainable object. And he, most of his poems give expression to these um, excesses of emotion, he just pours out um, metaphors in terms of storms and tempests and floods. And, and we saw that Shakespeare answered it. Remember that, that sonnet I gave you last week where he describes his mistress in terms of having black hair and breasts like done, but then he ends with that wonderful line, he says um, that he's never known a woman to be so firmly on the ground. Do you have it firmly on the ground? Doug, you have it, can you, um, do you have it, Tracy? It's, is that you? My mistress, when yep. she walks, treads on the ground. Yeah. Um, after he makes these comparisons to her disadvantage, that she doesn't, she doesn't appear the other way, other women, I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. That is, he's not going to idealize his wife. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground, and yet by heaven, 
I think my love as rare as any should belied with false compare. And I gave the other I gave the other example of Dante. Remember when he gets to the top of Purgatory, he has the siren, and that witch that he looks at takes possession of him. And remember, that's an image of idolatry. It's the ten in every human being, man and woman. Every human being has this tendency. God, God made our souls with infinite desire. Constantly, why? Because the ultimate end of our souls was an infinite God. We, have, we take that infinite desire to things in the world. We love something, think as soon as we get it, we're going to be happy. We get it, and then we want more. Always wanting more. The church calls that idolatry. The tendency in every man, and most men and women, is to look at it the person of the opposite sex and romantic, idealize that person, make that person something he or she isn't, and falsify it. Um, so one of the things that can happen when woman's put on a pedestal is that she's enabled, she's spoiled. I mean, she's made something she's not. So right at the heart of the um, courtly love romance is the egotism on the part of the male. That he partly does that not for her, he does it for himself. He tries to, he tries to show how generous he is and giving when, as a matter of fact, he's doing it to exalt himself. The same is true and just the opposite. So we learn about the dangers of idolatry either way. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up right now is remember, when we read The Sound of the Fury, Mrs. Compson probably one of the most perfect examples of that kind of enabling that we've ever seen in life. She can't do anything for herself. I mean, that's one of the effects of that Southern code, you know, the, the code of the gentleman to do everything for the woman. You reach a point where you do everything for her and she can do nothing herself. So the Christian has always taken a, a, a different stance. It, um, it asks us to have to be, remember in Dante, we're asked to be virtuous, to mind our own business, to make ourselves better so that whatever we bring to another person will be more just, more loving um, for the good of another person. To do something that will make another person enabled is not a good for that person. So the, the romance tradition that, that Faulkner dealt with in Sound of the Fury and that he's dealing with now is rich and complicated and at this point falling apart because we've seen that chivalric Christian tradition is virtually gone. Um, I told you about that essay that John Crow Ransom wrote once, that one of the reasons for the forms of manners in the South, call it a code or forms of manners, forms of courtship, is that if, if you take those codes away and leave man and woman on their own, but the natural tendency of the man is to possess her, to answer the, to fulfill his passions by having her. Um, and vice versa, I mean, for the woman to take that on too. Um, and this is where we left off last week. This is where we're going to go this week because this is right at the center of the whole book. Respectability. Um, I don't, I don't think I asked this of you guys last, did I, did we get here? I know I did it with the, the um, Friday group. And I asked, what is respectability? What does it define of our relationship? Let me just briefly summarize this. 
I think respectability is an, is an attempt to protect the sexual relationship between a man and a woman and primarily to protect the woman because the woman is the, is the principle of continuity of a civilization. She's the one who bears a child. Life is carried through her. Take, take away this code, take away respectability, and we leave man and woman at a primitive basis with nothing more than their sexual appetites to go at it. And you know how much, how much that dominates the, the thinking of the modern world. But there's a problem with respectability, and Faulkner has opened it up in this book. And it's, it seems to me it's really painful to watch. Um, a couple of things that are going on um, that, that show that this, I should have left it over there. Um, this southern culture that was founded on a, on a code of manners, the, the aristocratic code that was inherited from England, the courtly world, the, man, the plantation mannered world, is in collapse, absolute collapse. We, we all experienced it in Sound of the Fury, it's gone. Quentin tries to live up to it and can't. Mrs. Compson is, um, is um, she's just a whiner. I mean, she, she can't do anything for herself. She whines, blames everybody. The husband drinks, himself to death. Um, we're watching the modern world unfold. Um, what happens when um, all these things are taken away? A couple of things that are important to keep in mind. One of them is that what's taking place in the South is a part of a larger action, what we can call an enveloping action. There's that one line, I can't, um, I'm not sure that I'm going to be, it was the beginning of, um, I can't remember which chapter, it was the begin, very beginning of 4 5, when, Oh yeah, on page 109. I remember how Ratliff once said that the world's Helens never really won't lose forever the men who once loved and lost them, probably because they, the Helens, don't want to. I still wasn't born yet when um, Gavin left for Heidelberg, so as far as I know, his hair had already begun to turn white when I first saw him. Because although I was, I was born by then, I couldn't remember him when he came home. Go down a few lines. He said that at first, right up to the last minute, he believed that as soon as he finished his PhD, he was going as a stretcher bearer with the German army. Almost up to the last second, he was intending to go to Germany. He was in Germany. Yeah, well, at Heidelberg, you know, at the university. Um, before he admitted to himself, let's see, um, he was going as a stretcher bearer with the German army. Almost up to the last second before he admitted to himself that the Germany he could have loved that well had died somewhere between the, the Liege and Namur forts and the year 1848, or rather the Germany, which had emerged between 1948 and the Belgian forts, did not love since it was no longer the Germany of um, Goethe, Bach, or Beethoven and Schiller. The Romantic movement comes out of those poets. That's chapter seven. Um, so what we're watching is something that's not just peculiar to the South, the world is changing. It's, I think it's what the Pope had in his mind. Who, who wrote the encyclical on, that condemned modernism? That encyclical that... Anyway, we, we're watching a world. Something's happened to the world that changed the world. So what's going on in the South is only a part of 
something larger. So what we're watching with respect to phlegm, in some ways, is an image of something peculiarly modern. And it goes right to the core of this relationship between men and women and marriage and the role that respectability plays in that. Okay. I wish we had time to look at Freud right now, but we don't. Um, but. Um, so what we're watching is the breakdown of a Christian tradi tradition and what's replacing it and the effect that that has on individual people, men and women, and communities. Okay. Now remember, in Moby Dick, we already saw this happening. In fact, it already had happened. At the very outset of Moby Dick, um, Ishmael um, goes to New England to ship out, and what he encounters there are nothing but a series of hypocrisies. We've gone through it, so I don't want to do it again. But every one of those characters is in some ways failing their Christian call. And we talked, there's, it's not a sacramental world, it's a Protestant world, there no, there's no sacrament. It, and to put this simply, what you see is that nobody's carrying a cross. The cross has been refused in the modern world. People are living more and more comfortable lives and failing their Christian call. That's what we saw in Melville, that's what that crisis is about. Now we're watching it here, and I'm going to read some passages that will just bring this home in a minute. Um, so that's, that's, what we're, that's what we're dealing with, okay? Um, what, what, what enters the world in modernity is what I would call, um, it, it's one of the side effects of the sciences, that it encourages a habit in people to live in abstractions and reductions. So you tend to explain things away, mystery, miracles, sacraments, all get explained away. Everything is reduced to what the rational mind can grasp and make sense of. It's an empiricist kind of mindset. So, the, and the, the, the upshot of that is what we've seen, in the, particularly in the short stories we read, the shrinking of the human person. We saw that particularly, I thought, well in Flannery O'Connor, if you remember the, uh, the heart of the part, remember when, when Enoch and everybody goes to the museum and they see that little pygmy? and they're shocked. It's, it, it's an image of modern man, shrunken by what the modern mind has done to us. So, um, and, and all along we're aware as we read that Ratliff and Gavin and Chick and Gowan are all struggling to try to put this together and make sense of it because something's wrong. And we're watching these men and these young boys growing together as they learn. So in a, in a wonderful sense, it's, it's, to me, it's very Catholic. I mean, there's, there's a large community that is absolutely complicit in everything that's going on. They just, they watch it happen, don't do anything. But you've got this small kernel of individuals who are aware that something's wrong and that it's not going to be good. And they're beginning to come together. So, um, now at the point at which we left off last week, um, remember Gowan got beaten up by disdain and went off to Germany and then he came back. When he comes back, Linda's grown up now, she's a young 16 year old, and he turns his wanting to save, remember that was the word that he used, wanting to save Eula, he turns that wanting to rescue to Linda. 
away from Eula to her, her, to her daughter. But at the same time, something strange has happened because Flynn withdraws all of his money from the Sartorus Bank and, and deposits it in the Jefferson Bank. And nobody knows what he's up to. And um, these are some of the major questions. What is Flynn up to? Uh, this really reads like a detective story. I mean, you've got to feel that. Over and over and over again, you keep hearing Gavin say, this is what's going on. And you'll see Ratliff going, no, it's not that way at all. And they're trying to put this together and they're, they're growing up. They're, they're learning to become better people as they struggle with this larger question. Um, and that's, um, that's just a, a brief summary of where we are. I, what I want to do now is look at the chapters for tonight, 12. And I want to go through some readings to focus this and then um, see what we see, what's going on here. Um, I, I want you to hold on to this. The, the, the question that I put to the Friday group last, and I don't think I put it as strongly to you guys, is um, what's Faulkner doing with respectability? Um, and that becomes a more important issue for the book because we discover that the one thing that Flem wants is respectability. Now there's a problem with respectability. We saw that in Melville. Melville critiqued it. I believe Faulkner's critiquing it too. It's like he's almost standing inside the center of the church, what he's doing. But we've got to deal with this question. What is respectability? What, what, are, what good does it do? And what are its dangers? And what's wrong with it? If I'm right that woman's at the center of it, that these codes are fundamentally meant to protect woman, and even though it's not explicitly said anywhere, then there's something drastically wrong because you, I hate giving this away. It's good. I, it's good. You know where this is going if you've been doing your reading. What's going to happen? Eula kills herself. Breaks my heart to say that. I don't like giving things away. It's my way of just saying, we, we've got to come to terms with this tonight and next week. Because if, if it's intended to protect women, and this town's become complicit in a wrong, how do we understand what happens to Linda? Why does she do it? What's, what is Faulkner showing us? Do you mean Linda or Eula? Oh, sorry, Eula. Eula. So, what he, I mean, this is, this is in some ways darker than Melville, and you know how dark Melville is, because even though it's a funny, funny book, I mean, it's, it's a comedy of manners, there's something really dark at the center of it. Um, it isn't a funny book. Well, it is in lots of ways. No, it's not. <laughs> I, it's not. I laugh at, Suzanne laughs at it, I mean, it's hard no, not I to. I can't laugh at it. Yeah. It, it, it's, there's a lot of humor. It's, there's just yeah, it is. Here, let's. Anyway, those are those are concerns we've got to pick up here. Um, and you know, ultimately, I, I always try to finish the work. Is Christ present if He is aware? Because there's nothing explicitly religious. If there's anything, this is interesting because we've seen it again and again. If there's anything explicitly religious, it's it's that the Spain is the leader of an Episcopal church. That's all that's said about him. And he's the one darkening everything because of his affair with Eula. So, okay, let me stop here for a minute because I want to go through the, the chapters very, very quickly and look at some passages with you all. Any questions or questions or comments or observations? or?
said, I think I said last week, I get, I get lost between the two days, Monday night. And I've said this before, if, if we don't learn to read and find ourselves in every character, we're not reading well. You know I've said that, even though I, I, mean, I say it and hold my breath. Um, Flem is not a, Flem is a one-dimensional person. He's probably one of the flattest characters I've ever encountered in all my years of reading literature. He's an image of a principle, and it's masculine, clearly masculine. And I believe he's an image of something inside of every one of us. This is our culture. Remember when we did the Divine Comedy, Dante had to go down into the depths of the inferno before he could go up because he had to learn to see every ugly, every possible ugly thing about the human soul in its fall. So there was no other purpose to do that because he could not begin to climb that mountain until he learned to see himself as he was. He was damned until Beatrice came. So he had to learn that. Flem is an image of something at work in the American character in the, in the same way that was true of what we saw in the beginning of Moby Dick. Ishmael, had, Ishmael was the answer to it. What's Faulkner's answer going to be? Where, um, what are we going to say when this is all done? Um, how do we understand our modern world and um, our place in it and what we're doing? So, and um, I mean, I, as ugly as it may seem, I'm, I'm asking everybody to look at Phlegm as something. Remember Plato's Cave? We assimilate this stuff, it's a part of who we are. It can either remain that way, or we can do something about it. Um, but if we don't see it, God, I mean, we're stuck. And how many, remember, I, I asked this question after we did sound, how many people stepped forward to talk to the Compton family when it was going to hell? Not a one, not a one. Everybody was in their private world, comfortable, respectable, God, meaning the, it's hard for me to say that word anymore. It has a sour taste in my mind. Even, even though, I mean, it's, I can't, I've got, I don't want to give this. Um, nobody, nobody stepped forward. Jefferson City, the whole town is complicit. And one of the great ironies of the book, it's, I'm, I'll make this clear in a minute. Ratliff, or Gavin, is at least as complicit as anybody. He tries, he, he's the one character who tries to be the noblest person in the character, I mean, in the story. And he gets it all wrong from beginning to end. And I'm going to read it in a minute. He absolutely romanticizes Flem Snopes. I'll look at that chapter. So when we're looking at this story, it is, it's, it's, I think it's comic. It's a, it's a, it's a comedy of manners. Beneath the, the humor, there is a dark, dark, dark thing going on. It's our world. So. <coughs> Okay. Um, <clears throat> I want to read these passages first before we start. Um, turn to page 161. One what? 161. Okay. Remember, this is just shortly after Montgomery Snopes um, got caught. And um, Gavin was starting to put things together and thought he understood everything. And then, <laughs> I love this chapter, remember, page 161, this beginning of chapter 9. 
Um, this is the chapter, because he missed it, he missed it completely. Gavin comes up with all these reasons for explaining things. He, he's, a net, he's an educated man. Very well educated. He's got it all wrong. Um, every reason he gives for explaining what's just happened is wrong. Page um, um, 175. Actually, one, sorry, 172 and then 175. You remember when they first catch Montgomery Ward Snopes that he's insulting and um, what's the word brazen just absolutely brazen he's fearless because he knows they can do nothing even though they caught him they're helpless um, um, and he says on page 172 when he gets so offensive um, Hamp can't control himself anymore and he slaps him Gavin says stop Montgomery Snopes is only too willing to have him stop him again because he can take a suit against him. Not only will he have the charges dismissed because there's nothing on him, he'll be able to sue them. Um, on 172, let him go ahead, Montgomery Ward said. Suing his bondsman is easier than running a magic lantern. Safer, too. Where was I? Oh, yes. And he begins to taunt them with all the things that he's going to get away with. Here's, here's where I want to go. Middle of the page. All you got is Grover Winbush, and he don't dare testify. This is crux. He don't dare testify, not because he will lose his job, because he'll probably do that anyway, because everybody knows he's going to be asked to step down right now, but he's, he's of the we. He's of the town. What has Chick been doing all along from the very beginning? He can't say, he never says I, or rarely. He always says we, and by we I mean Jefferson. Gatliff and Rat, Rat, Gavin and Ratliff and Chick and Gallen. Gallen, we've talked about this before, always speak with an identity of being a part of a body. I'd suggested the parallel to the mystical body. They don't exist as individuals isolated. They, they have no identity apart from their connections with other people. So he says um, Winbush will be, lose his job, um, all you got is him. He don't testify, not because he'll lose his job, because he probably do that, but because the God-fearing Christian holy citizens of Jefferson won't let him because they can't have it known that this is what their police do when they're supposed to be at work. Shortly after that, Flem comes in on page 175. He wants to find, he's there because he wants to try to find out what he can do to put Montgomery Snopes out of the way, because you know that he doesn't want anything to tarnish his own reputation. Um, and he says at the bottom of 175, I'm thinking of Jefferson, Mr. Snoop said. So am I, Uncle Gavin said, of that damn Grover Winbush and every other arrested adolescent between 14, 14 and 58 in half of North Mississippi with 25 cents to pay for one look inside that album. I forgot about Grover Winbush, Mr. Snoop said. He would only lose his job, but when he does, folks will want to know why, and this whole business will come out. What's he saying? He knows that nobody's not good. Nobody wants that to happen. Now, at this point, what's the problem with respectability before we go any farther? Is it clear? It's kind of like cover up everything at all costs so that we can 
image, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, an image. It's, it's a false respectability. False in what sense, Marcy? What's wrong with it? In that there's the what the public sees, and that's the false respectability. But inside themselves, it's fake. Yeah. It's not real. Or some, something's it's wrong. It's not real. Anyway. Yeah, right. I hope it's clear because um, it's going to become clear later that that's what Flynn is seeking. One of the problems with it is that evil can hide in it. It can get away when people are implicated because they're afraid to come forward to be humiliated by what people will learn about them. So this, this instinct for um, self-protection or to preserve an image actually gets in the way of dealing with harder things. So, at this point, um, lots of things happening. The whole town's been aware of the Eula, um, the Spain adultery for years. Nothing's been done about it. Gavin, <laughs> Gavin scandalizes the town because he's the one at the dance who goes up and pulls the Spain away and then the two of them go out. He's the one that makes it public. He does it in indirectly and courteously by having to send corsages to all the women in the, in the town and he makes all the husbands furious because then they have to give their wives. Nobody wants to do it. So in his efforts to be good, he's indirectly making everybody aware that, of what they don't want to admit. So early on we get hints of something breaking into this veneer. I, I don't like calling it that way. but And here it becomes more explicit because we know that Montgomery can hide behind it. And even Gavin knows it because Gavin, um, Gavin knows when he responds to Flem that he's not gonna do anything to make things harder for Hampton himself because he cares too much for the man. So here's evil using good things between people to hide himself. In the case of Montgomery, it's actually to, to his advantage to get away with a crime. Um, turn to page 63. Remember, this is when, um, this is when Despain, this is, this is one of the most humiliating moments in the story. Wait, what page are you? 63. Okay, you backed up. This is when Despain was riding his roadster, remember, in front of the, the Mallison house. And it was one of those funny, funny dining room scenes, we, we've already gone through it, where um, Maggie is upset with um, her husband Charles because he wants to use the word whore, describing it, and she doesn't. And <coughs> so there's this sense of etiquette, manners, You're, it's really not allowed to do that. And, um, and Gavin stands up to defend Eula, and Charles stands up to defend respectability. And the two already got, and then Molly gets in between and says, apologize to me, right? But she makes both of them and do that. And then the funny thing after that, when, when you know, he says that he's never even looked at the woman, because all the other men in town are, and he prides himself on doing that. She has that comeback where she says, all the worse for me. I've, I've married a cold fish for a husband. And yeah. we've talked that through. And then a year later, they've got chicks. So we know some passion was let go somewhere in there. But, um, but here's the, here's the line I wanted to look at, one in 63, in the middle of the page. Gowans had to sit there and endure to Spain, going back and forth, um, honking at him, 
um, to embarrass him. And you know what he does just before the ball, the cotillion ball. He sends that rake head that the boys use um, with two corsages tied together with a rubber, a prophylactic. It's his way of just throwing salt in a wound. Here, before we get to that, Gavin is sitting there having to act as if nothing's going on. And this is Chip recalling the story, remember? And Gowan said they all looked at Uncle Gavin and that he himself was ashamed. Oh, wait, wait, let me go up. Um, that's Gavin's job, Father said. He's the acting city attorney when you're in a checker game. He's, he's, being, he's being flippin' light about the whole thing. He, he's just not allowing how degrading this is. He's the one to speak to the marshal, or better still, the mayor. Ain't that right? Because he... This, I mean, this is almost painful to read. Despain's the mayor. He's the one having the affair. All he's doing is making fun of Gavin. This is the husband now. Or better still, the mayor. Ain't that right, Gavin? And Gowan said they all looked at Uncle Gavin and that he himself was ashamed. Not of Uncle Gavin, of us. The rest of them. He said that it was like watching somebody's britches falling down while he got to use both hands trying to hold up the roof. You are sorry. It's funny. Ashamed you had to be there watching Uncle Gavin. He's, I mean, it's a wound. It really is. I mean, he's, he, he, he feels it deeply in his heart that he has to watch this. So early on, we're seeing that something's happening to the heart of this boy as he's learning. We've talked about this, that a tutoring is going on. Um, Ratliff's going to pick him up when he's five, remember, and start talking about the evil going on. And so this young boy um, is learning to experience um, the pain that comes from watching somebody he loves being wounded by it. Um, on page 79, go back. Um, this, is, um, this is after the ball, after um, Gavin got beaten up. Bottom of the page, um, Gavin comes out of the fight bloodied completely bloody, Despain's a bull of a man. He flung them off and ran at Mr. Despain again. Every time he got knocked down, he picked himself up and went after him again. This is Gavin. When I was older, I knew that too, that Uncle Gavin wasn't trying anymore to destroy or even hurt Mr. Despain, because he'd already found out by that time that he couldn't. But now Uncle Gavin was himself again. What he was doing was simply defending forever with his blood the principle that chastity and virtue in women shall be defended whether they exist or not. This is Don Quixote. And by the way, I'm going to say Christ. Even though, even though you know that I'm, later I'm going to say Gavin's in his head and missing everything. The, the wonderful thing about what he's trying to do, even if it's misdirected or misguided, I've said this before, Christ came into the world not because we deserved it. Um, that's one of the beauties of the Don Quixote story. You know, he's defending um, Roxanea, Dulcinea. Um, um, he came into the world because we didn't deserve it. He had, we, there's no way we could have achieved our final end without him because left with justice, we're all damned. What was needed was a mercy beyond anything justice demanded. So God, Christ gave that to us. What Gavin's doing in some sense is that. And Chick is seeing it. So we're watching this young boy developing these sensibilities to, to, to learn courtesies and courage. The last, the last page I want to um, look at before, um, before we leave that, remember when 
when Gavin comes back from the war, um, um, oh, somebody help me work. What, um, where is it when? Page, I think, 191 and 2. Um, this is when Molly realizes, or Maggie realizes again that something's wrong with Gavin, and she knows long before anybody else does that she, he's got Linda on his mind. And she asks if she can call him over, remember, to dinner. The father starts making fun of him again, and then the same thing is repeated. He, he's there with Linda at dinner, and Matt Levitt comes by with his roadster honking his corn insultingly because he knows the, the Spain story. So what he's doing is just taunting him again. And Chick, or, um, let's see, Chick, yeah, is there to watch it now before he just heard it. This, the, the, this chapter 12 ends with Levitt coming in the door, locking the door, and coming over and beating Gavin up, physically just punching him. He's, remember, he's an ex-Olympian champion um, boxer. When, and Chick is present in the room, so he's watching his uncle, his, his cousin. I'm going to keep, you know it's a cousin, but I'm going to keep saying uncle because he's just older. Um, Chick is watching it, bottom of 199. Levitt hits him and bloodies him up, and Chick watches on. He didn't, he didn't seem to hit hard. His fist not traveling more than four or five inches, it looked like so that it didn't even look like they were drawing blood from Uncle Gavin's lips and nose, but just instead wiping the blood onto them, two or maybe three blows. That's because how strong he is. Um, three or four blows before I could seem to move and grab up Grandfather's heavy walking stick, where it still stayed in the umbrella stand behind the door, and raise it to swing at the back of Matt's head as hard as it could. Gavin says, you chick, he stops him. The heroism in this scene, you can read it and miss it. Gavin doesn't want his nephew to get hurt. He's saying stop, so he's saving him. His nephew is trying to save him. So we've seen a young boy um, go through a period where he actually suffers with his uncle because of what he has to endure. He's hurt by it and embarrassed for everybody, he says, for all of us. And here he's showing that he's got the courage to stand up for him against his puckers. That's not a thought out thing. That's a reaction to save somebody. Matt, you know, Matt Levitt picks him up and throws him down and puts the umbrella on him. Um, and then um, Gavin tells him to get out. Chapter 13. Levitt goes out. Linda comes in, um, screams at him, curses at him. I don't think it's funny because none of them are used to hearing a woman scream profanity. Um, and Levitt leaves. Um, and on the bottom of 202. Now remember, Maggie has been constantly saying to Gavin, when Gavin wants to try to help her, he says, I'm trying to form her mind. And it's interesting because in a sense, <laughs> how much of his tutoring is tutoring? And it clearly is. But it's hard to see what he's doing as not having some form of courtship because it's a young girl, even though that's not his intention. He's trying to do everything he can to dispel that notion. But in this town, he knows that anybody who sees him with a girl is going to construe it that way. So that's the predicament he's in. Um, here, she comes in, she throws herself on 
him. She knows that he's getting beaten up for her, just like Eula. Remember, you, what did Eula do after the ball? Um, she goes to offer her body. And that's, she goes that night to Gavin's office. Um, she throws herself 202. Mr. Gavin, Mr. Gavin, oh, Mr. Gavin, Linda, I said, can you hear me? She didn't answer, just clutching me. I could feel her nodding her head against my chest. Do you want to marry me? Remember, Maggie has been encouraging him to marry. Maggie thinks that's the answer to this whole problem, marry her. Um, Yule's going to say the same thing. Do you want to marry me? I said, yes. She said, yes, all right, all right. Um, top of two or three. Listening man said, do you want to get married? Yes, they don't need minds at all. Now he's talking about women generally. It's not a very flattering, but he, he's talking about that. It, it's his rationalization to make it possible for him to marry her if she wants it. That is, he's giving himself up, basically, even though he doesn't want to do it. Um, you mean I don't have to, she said? Of course not, I said. Never if you like. I don't want to marry anybody, she said. How could she feel differently having the father and aware of what's going on with her mom? Not anybody, she said, you're all I have, all I can trust. I love you, I love you. It seems to me this is the high point in the middle of the novel. That we, the high point with Eula and Gavin in that office visit, he went off to where he'd come back and now we're, we're situated here and Linda becomes of principal importance to him. Whatever he's gonna do now, he wants to try to help free this young girl from all that she's having to go through. Um, chapter 14, um, Gavin wants to send traveling luggage to Linda because he wants her out of town. And um, Maggie doesn't think it's a good idea, so she sends the luggage um, as a graduation gift, but with all of the family members signing their name on page 211, she's, it ends with that. Yes, Mother said, one of them will know it, that, that it really comes from Gavin, even though they have to sign to, to seem proper. Chapter 15, to me, is one of the funniest in the book. Um, it really is funny, and it seems to me it's, it's a critique. It's a critique of the chivalric romance code, because if you've read it, you know. Gavin wants to meet with Linda, and he has to be careful that people don't get the wrong idea and that she doesn't. So he writes her a note and says, I'll be a little bit late, and he comes late, and she leaves. And um, then he, he, he thinks about seeing her again, and he pictures meetings that the two of them will have, missing each other by a corner, trying to appear that they're running into each other accidentally. So he keeps constructing these dramas between him and, or involving him and Linda. None of them work out. He thinks it's better to stay away and at some point, it gets even more laughable because he knows that if he stays away, people will notice it. They'll assume that he's covering up. So there's nothing he can do. And it's just funny to watch his mind go through all these maneuvers to try to protect her name and his own name. So respectability is, takes on this comic aspect in that whole scene. Um, yeah, they, they meet at at Christian's drugstore. Mm -hmm. So I think that was kind of interesting that, that he named it Christian's mm -hmm. as if there's, you know, stewardship, the Christian's concept of stewardship occurring, uh, attempting to be, a, to be uh, lived out there yeah. in the drugstore. Yeah. Pro probably something to that. I, I don't know, Joan. It's, it's, 
but they're, they're certainly, they're all, all these scenes are full of ironies. As the time approaches for her graduation, he writes her, or when the year is out, he writes her again and says, let's meet again, because he wants to try to help her choose a university. So they, they do meet, and she comes late this time. It's as if she really was aware that he was late and insulting in what he did before, and Gavin sees it that way. But she comes dressed up with lipstick, looking much, much older as a young woman, and Gavin assumes that she went home to dress up, probably under her mother's orders, I think. Um, and he, they go out of the drugstore, and he said, let's walk. And she says on page 226, I can't. Um, and that's, he compliments her on how well she looks. And, and then on 227, on the bottom of the page, she says again, I can't, she said. You said that before. I said, you can't what? The school, she said, the ones you, the catalogs from outside Jefferson. I'm glad you can. He said, I didn't expect you to decide alone. That's why I wanted to see you, to help you pick out the right ones. But I can't. Don't you understand? She's getting emotional again. I can't, I can't. She's saying, Gavin, um, tell me. Now, at this point, it's interesting because he starts to lead her, and she wants to go upstairs, and he leads her away, and um, he assumes that she can't because her mother won't let her. Um, and he tells Linda that he will go talk with her on page 229. Um, she leaves, and he's trying to assure telling her that he will go visit her mother and make everything okay. This is the, the, the night, the chivalric night, page 229. He runs into Ratliff, who's learned about it all, and, he, um, and Ratliff says, in the middle of 229, what he said, you're going to see Eula because Eula won't let her leave Jefferson to go to school? You're wrong. All right, I said I'm wrong. I don't want to do it either. I'm, um, I'm not that brave. Goes on, but wait, I tell you, wait, he said, because you're wrong. But I couldn't wait anyway, I didn't mean. He runs off to Eula's house. Now just stop for a second. How well does Gavin listen? Because this is going to be a big issue, huh? Not. Not at all. <laughs> not. Rattlis is right in the middle of telling him something. He says, I can't wait. He's got to go off and rescue. You know, he's going to go over to Lynn. You know what happens there. That He walks in and he sees all this furniture and he says, it's not you. It, he puts it together, and she makes it clear that it's all Flem because Flem wants this respect. He wants this image. He wants this respectability. So he picked it all out himself. This is one of the worst parts of this old book, from two thirty-one to two forty, because you find out that the wife and the daughter are furniture. Yeah. Yes. They are yeah. furniture. Yeah. Yes. Everybody yeah, is that, in Flem. That is a horrible yes. thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. They're furniture. Everybody is in Flem's world. They're just things to be I used know. for. Yeah. I yeah. guess it was these pages that tore me apart right there. Yeah, it's just. Um, on page 237 forward for the next few lines, um, Eula makes it clear that she can't leave Jefferson not because of her, but because of Flem. Because Flem doesn't want to lose control over her because he knows if she, she leaves town to get married, Eula will leave Flem. And he loses his furniture, he which, he needs, <laughs> right, right. which he needs for the public to <laughs> see. Right, right. He loses his money, 
and the voting share. Because remember, yes. Varner signed over the will to EULA, and he doesn't want to lose that. So all the motives are money, monetary. Gavin keeps saying 227. Um, I'll tell her Flem's not her father. And Eula makes clear in the beginning or in the middle of 237, she won't believe him. Um, and they leave. They leave it that way. At the bottom of 237, he leaves down at the bottom of the page, and Ratliff again still in the client's chair where I had left him an hour ago. I tried to tell you, he said, of course it's Flem. Now, all he does is make clear to Gavin that he had known this all along, that if Gavin had listened, he would have, he would have learned it. Um, over on page 239, it's one of the funniest parts of this here thing. After Ratcliffe explains what happened between Varner and Flynn um, with respect to Frenchman's Bend and the will, Gavin says, wait, wait, I said, wait, it's my time now. Because I don't know anything about women, because things like love and morality and jumping at any chance you can find that will keep you from being a Snopes are just a poet's romantic dream. Now, so much of this he got from Eula, because she, she said, you don't know much about women. So he's, it's as if he learned from her, and now he's passing on to Ratliff what he should have known, and he's beginning to learn about himself. Um, and women aren't interested in the romance of dreams. They're interested in the reality of facts. They don't care what facts, let alone whether they're true or not. They just dovetail with all the other facts without leaving a sawtooth edge, right? Well, he said, I might not put it exactly that way, because I don't know anything about women, I said. So would you mind telling me how the hell you learned? Maybe by listening. <laughs> I have a big circle around that phrase. <laughs> Maybe by listening. And this is what he says, which we all knew since what Yoknapatafa had not seen at some time during the past 10 or 15 years, the tin box shaped and painted to resemble a house and containing the demonstrator machine, in the old days attached to the back of a horse-drawn buckboard and since then to the rear of a converted automobile, hitched or parked beside the gate to a thousand yards on hundred backcountry roads while surrounded by a group of four, five, or six ladies come in sunbonnets or straw hats from anywhere up to a mile along the road. <coughs> Ratliff himself with his smooth brown bland inscrutable face in his neat faded tireless blue shirt sitting in a kitchen chair in the shady yard <coughs> sorry or in the gallery listening oh yes we all knew that where does Ratliff get his knowledge he's selling sewing machines to women <coughs> listening to women listen. you want remember that remember that line in go down Moses when um, in the opening scene when they went off to get um, Tommy's Turtle because Tommy Turtle had run and when they get there it's told from the point of view of um, Cal when he was nine and he goes out in the backyard while the men are looking for or napping at that point and he finds Tommy's Turtle and Tommy's Turtle said if you want to, because we know from that line that Safanzaba has put the men up to this so she can catch Hubert his words were if you want to get something done let the women do it. <laughs> Ratliff has got all of his wisdom from listening to women. Where does Gavin get all of his learning? From books. From books. Uh, from books. And in a courtroom, yeah. Well, 
remember that's we we've talked about that Gavin lives in this structured world we saw that at the end of Good M. Moses when Molly said I want it all on the paper and Gavin couldn't get back to town fast enough he went up to the city limits turned around and went back he's a man of law well uh, Ratcliffe also nailed him when he said uh, so I didn't listen to the right ones. Yes. Ratliff said, are the wrong ones neither. You never listen to nobody because by that time you are already, already talking, talking again. again. <laughs> so he didn't listen. Yes, yes. You don't listen, you don't learn. Learn, yes. We don't have time, just quickly, I want to, um, on, in chapter 16, we get the Mrs. Haight and Het story. Remember that um, her husband had been buying mules from I.O. and tying them on the railroad tracks to get the insurance money claim, and they were making a fortune. And till one night, I guess he drank too much and got tangled up in the t tied himself there and got run over. She gets the insurance money, and I.O. wants his share. And you know what happens. Um, Flem, Mrs. Haight sends for, sends for Gavin because she wants a lawyer because she knows Snopes is going to come after her. Snopes, Flem goes to Gavin and asks that he come out as a witness because he's going to, he's going to offer I owe money to get out of town. So we get rid of him that way. I only want, it's a funny, funny story. The descriptions of the mules going around and the chickens and it reminds me of the spotted horses. There's almost something magical about the way Wagner describes everything that happens in that scene. But I want to look at um, I think it's 267. Take a look at 267. This stunned me today. Actually, the other day, and it stunned me more today. So let's see what you make of it. You remember that after Flem settled things with I.O., he was going to pay him money for each one of the mules. One of them was missing. And I wanted the money, and Flem being the shrewd, niggardly person he is, he said, I'm not going to give you money without the mule, so I asked to go get it. He leaves, and he comes back, and he says to Mrs. Haight that he wants his $10, because the mule was, well, what had you, you know, he shot the, <laughs> she shot the mule, so he can't collect, and he says, I want my $10. She says, what $10? To act as if he never got it because the transaction never took place because the agreement between them is none of this ever happened. So she's outfoxing him. It's, it's like the opening episode between Tommy, Tom Turrell and Tom Tom, the, the funny way it, you know, it folds out. This is just a comic, comic scene. And, but a couple of things here. Um, he won't, she won't give him the money back and then after he leaves because he can't do anything about it and he has to get out of town, Het asks him what she does, and she says she shot it. But up above that, on 267, this is his cause argument. The, the, I, I'm saying that legalistically. When you go to court, you have a cause, and you have to present it before a judge, a jury. So you've got a cause. Somebody's wronged you. <clears throat> I believe him to be sincere. He really believes he's wronged. That, um, she got all this money when he was the entrepreneur. He was taking it. Oh, God, this is so funny. He's the entrepreneur. He's the one taking Imagine this in Wall Street or New York. I mean, this plays out every day. 
Io is the entrepreneur. He lost out. She's got all the money. He wants what's owed him. But here's the way he, he offers his reason, his defense. 267, towards the top. Can't near a man living say I did, even if it did seem a little strange that you should get it all, even my 60 standard price ahead for them five mules, when he wasn't working for you and you never even known where he was, let alone even own the mules. She had no part of it. She, her, her husband kept it all secret. That you done, that all you done to get half of that money was just to be married to him. And now after all them years of not actively begrudging you, he's been, he's been so kind and generous, you take the last mule I had, not just beat me out of another $140, but out of an entire 150 because she wouldn't give him the $10 back. What does he, um, what does he want? You got your mules back, and you ain't satisfied yet, old headset. What does you want? Justice, I always said. That's what I want. That's all I want, justice for the last time. What do we learn about marriage and justice from this small episode. Well, he was cheating the railroad company. I O was. He, he wasn't concerned about justice or in the in the common society. Right. I mean, he was only concerned about somebody cheating him. Yeah. A little trifling. Yeah. A little thing like that. What jumped out at me in this scene was his saying that all you'd done to get half of that money was just to be married to him. What's his idea of marriage? Business. Huh? Business transaction. Furniture. Economic. Economic. I mean, just stop and think about it. This is more, I mean, I'm going to say, I'm going to make a claim here. We've seen it in those short stories that we read. You, you understand the nature of marriage by its opposition and its affirmations. He has nothing in him that makes him think marriage is worth anything, except that it's a financial you know, it's basis. His view of marriage clearly is it's simply a civic affair for convenience. Why should she get the money? Because she's married. She, that is, she didn't do anything to earn it. So in a sense, even though this is very funny, and it's a comic, it really is a funny scene, it's a scathing revelation yeah. of what the modern man how he looks at marriage. And, that, and that's, it's at the center of this book. It's frightening. It's frightening. She didn't do anything to earn it. It's so depersonalizing to the woman. Hmm? It's depersonalizing to the woman. All of man she and woman, everybody. Yeah. Occupy a house, right? Right. It's not just to the woman. It's to both of them. His, yeah. This is marriage. It's not just... It's, he, 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 would, he looked at... Mr. Hate the same way. I mean, he doesn't, it's, there are things. But my concern is less, the, it's, women, it's both of them, that the idea of marriage here is that it's, it's nothing. He, he cannot see anything there worth valuing. At all. At all. Um, so, in Fled Snopes and in the Snopes, we're watching a family breed that is an image of modern, deracinated man, uprooted, who lives in abstractions. And, I, and I've got to put this as strongly as I can. There is behind these people nothing of a tradition. They have no sense of a tradition, of a past. If you watch Gavin and Ravid, um, Gavin and Ratliff and Chuck and Gowan work, there's nothing they do that doesn't have a sense of a we. They are carrying a past forward, a tradition 
is embodied in everything they do. What we're watching in Phlegm and the other Snopes is modern man trying to create a world on, on his own. And it's, it's epitomized in Phlegm because what does he want more than anything? Respectability. What Faulkner's showing us is you just cannot, you cannot step into respectability abstractly. Will it to be? Phlegm's going to be respectable by simply stepping into this job. What Faulkner showed is you, you can't come into this except with a history and a culture that helps prepare you for it. You have to grow into it. Modern, deracinated man has all these schemes about accomplishing something, and he can just do it and have it done. The past is gone. We've talked about this over and over and over again. So he's giving us an image of modern man destroying a culture and a tradition fading. And the one thing that's most needed is that tradition, because without it, You've got all these people making these decisions in absolute abstraction, and they're treating other people as things. You know, Mrs. Haight, uh, she is that, that's how you pronounce her name. Mm -hmm. She should not have allowed her husband to make money that way. She didn't know. She didn't know. No, she didn't know. Well, that was another thing about that kind of marriage. Marriage. They yes, did right. keep yes, 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 yes. And they pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 270. This goes to Marcy's point, um, and it's one we have to. I, the, the novel to me is very, very funny on, on multiple levels. The, some of the scenes he does are just so wonderfully comic. But as I've suggested, underneath it is this dark thing. That's, Rat that's my <laughs> Ratliff says at 268 at the bottom, they're talking about what happened on the, on the, head, the hate scam, you know. Gavin's out of town for a while, and Ratliff and Chick are now meeting, and Ratliff's talking to Chip about all that happens, and then at the bottom of 268 he says, that's right, he said, because as soon as you sit down to laugh at it, you find it ain't funny at all. He looked at me. Because it was a funny, funny scene, but if you look at what's going on behind it, this is really dark. This is really dark. And then he says on 260, I couldn't tell him. He missed it again, and Chick asked, missed what? And he says he tried to tell him all these things about what Flem was doing. And he says he wouldn't listen. And this finally, you know, because on, remember in chapter 9 and 11, he says he just missed it, he missed it again. He keeps it. And by the way, how is 18? Chapter 17 is Gavin's attempt. This is like 15. It's Gavin's attempt to understand Flem's motives. When you read that chapter, it, it's, it's funny because you watch Gavin romanticize everything. Um, and you have to ask how, how complicit he is. He talks about Flynn in terms of humility. And, and by the way, recall the difference between Ratliff in The Hamlet and Gavin. What was Ratliff's view of Flynn in The Hamlet? Remember, he usurped the devil. He had that vision of of Flem taking over the devil's spot is that comic vision. But it's clear that he's, he's coming to see what Flem is. In this chapter 18 or 17, Gavin is just romanticizing him everywhere, wanting to make him nice. What does that do for Gavin's role in trying to straighten this out? He's got this knightly sense of himself. He's being good to people. He's being very generous. 
he's complicit everywhere by what he's doing. How does it end? I mean, look at the beginning of, after he settles everything and he thinks he's answered everything, we just learned a few pages before, turn to page 310. After this long, these long ruminations about Flem and what motivates him and what's doing, what, he's, what reasons he's doing them for, 18 begins. No, 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 he was wrong. He's a lawyer to a lawyer if it ain't complicated. There's Ratliff again. Gatliff's miss, missing it all. This is what he says um, when Chick asks, why couldn't you tell him? Because remember, Ratliff has been saying all along, he either doesn't listen, I mean he just doesn't listen, or if I tell him, he won't, he won't understand. Here's, here's his answer to that finally. Missed what I said, even when he was looking right at it, when Flem, himself, notice how Ratliff is trying to improve his language to make himself more respectable. <clears throat> when Flem hit himself, come in here the morning after them, those, keeps correcting themselves, Federals raided that studio, and give your uncle that studio key that had been missing from the sheriff's office ever since your uncle and Hub found them, those pictures, and even when it was staring him right in the face out yonder at Miss Hate's chimney, Saturday night when Flem gave, give, gave her that mortgage and paid I.O. for the mules, he still missed it, and I can't tell him. Um, why can't you tell him, I said, because he wouldn't believe me. This here is the kind of thing you, a man, has got to know his, himself. He's got to learn it out of his own hard dread and skier, because what somebody else tells you, you just half believe unless it was something you already wanted to hear. And in that case, you don't even listen to it because you had already done agreed, and so all it does is make you think what a sensible teller it was that told you. Something you don't want to hear is something you've done already made up your mind against whether you know, knew or not. Go on over, next page. What does Flem want? Page 270 at the bottom. What, what? What's he got to have? Respectability, Ratliff said. Respectability, that's right. When it's just money and a power a man wants, there's usually some place where he will stop. There's always one thing at least that ever, every man won't do just for money. But when it's respectability, he finds out he wants and has got to have, there ain't nothing he won't do to get it and then keep it. When it's almost too late, when he finds out what he's got to have, and that even after he gets it, he can't just lock it up and set, sit down on top of it and quit, but instead he's got to keep on working with every, every breath to keep it. There ain't nothing he will stop at, ain't no, nobody or nothing within his scope and reach that may not anguish and grieve and suffer. Respectability, I said. That's right, Ratliff said. What has Flem been doing for the entire town? He can't be busy enough getting rid of Snopes, trying to cover his tracks, and doing everything he can't work, buy the furniture, get rid of his family. Right, all the family members, he had to get rid of them. Yep, yep. So here's, let me, let me stop here, just a couple of questions. Um, I don't know how, is everybody clear on, on where we are in the book? It's been a mystery for the last seven or eight chapters what Flem has been up to. Nobody seems to understand. Ratliff's had an idea. He keeps trying to tell Gavin. He doesn't listen. Um, and it, it, it seems to be unraveling. Something's happening. It's, it's pointing towards a crisis. They've uncovered that. Ratliff will end this chapter saying, Flem's got to do something now. 
because too much is happening. And we're going to find out what that is at the end of the novel. So um, the novel's moving towards a crisis. Um, what's Flem up to? We, from Ratliff, we hear that he wants respectability. It isn't quite clear yet what he still has to do to get it. Um, and we know, if you've been reading, you know what's going to happen. Um, Linda and Gavin are going to meet. Um, she, she, she makes out her will to her father. Um, and um, Linda kills herself. So the darkness that's been hidden is, is going to surface. Or Eula killed herself. Not Linda. Sorry, sorry, Eula. sorry. You, yeah. Eula. So a couple of questions for, for me right now. How is, how is um, Faulkner looking at respectability? We saw that Melville was really, really critical of it, that it was failing everywhere. Um, what, what's his attitude? Um, clearly there's some things wrong with it. Let's name them and we get them out. But the other question, the other side of it is, if you don't have respectability, what do you have? So where are we going? I mean, um, where are we at this point in the story? Um, that's one of the major questions for me, if you guys want to jump in on this. just uh, What is respectability? What's wrong with it here? Because um, it's fake. It's fake. All he wants is an appearance, and he will do whatever to get it. And he's getting rid of all his family members. He will eventually get rid of Linda. But it's only for the public to see. And he is an evil man inside himself. Yeah, yeah. No respectability. Right. Take a look at respectability in the, in the larger context of the whole story in the town itself. He wants it because the town's got it. I mean, this town is defined by respectability in the same way that that northern New England town was in, in Melville. These are all Christian people. I read that passage in that Montgomery Snope section. Remember we said he knew that they weren't going to turn him in because nobody in the town would have wanted to admit that that's what their policemen were doing. And a number of times, Gavin says it, Chick says it, they're aware that they're complicit in what's going on. So, um, so what do we, where is Faulkner on respectability? Um, what, what are the problems with it? Um, wait, let me, sorry. Get, I, it represents the, the, at some long point, it's the fruit of what originally was very Christian um, in its origins the relationship between a man and a woman, the way that a man would treat a woman and restrain himself for. You know that it got mixed up in a, in a plantation world and it was inherited from an aristocracy. It's in a democracy now so that there are inherent problems there. But in its spirit, it's, it, it, it sees itself as being Christian. All the, the, that's, why, that's what Montgomery Snub says. You think this Christian people is gonna... So keep that in mind when you... So anyway, sorry, Tracy, go. No, I was gonna say that it uh, prohibits for a Christian people, you going are you you gonna go so far as to say all these people are damned then? Gosh, I hadn't thought that far. No. Um, no, I guess you know. Well, confession came to mind. You know, our say it again. Confession came to mind. Yeah. That we have this 
phrase of being able to you know, confess and be forgiven. But if you can't confess, how do you experience that forgiveness and growth and change? Before and you repentance, even get, yeah. you know? Before you even get to that point, if, if you're living with some awareness that something's wrong and you're not doing anything about it, then what? And before you even get to a point. And it almost seems settled. Let me try to put this positively. It seems to me the people are trying to look out for each other. That's what Montgomery Snopes says. Gavin, make, Gavin makes that clear with Grosvenor Winebush because he, he doesn't want to shame him. Even though he'll probably be, do something to get him out of the job, but he'll try to do it in a way that will spare him. So there's some Christian spirit to what they're doing, but at the same time, they're aware of something going on and they're not doing anything about it. And it's gotten worse and worse and worse. So what happens when people are aware of a wrong, growing in awareness that something's wrong and not doing anything about it? What do you suggest the town people do? You know, at this point, he's the vice president of the bank. He becomes the president. But if you're living in that town and you have a job and you come home and the next day you go to your job, how can you do anything about it? At what level can they do anything? Anybody want to? My only problem. <laughs> well, they is it, this, is a southern, this is a southern story. And what's happening up north at this time, basically, and, and why it's different, is because they just came through a, a, a slavery situation where people were treated like furniture. I mean, they just sold and bought people like tape. They were pieces of, of chairs or, or tables, and they had no value except for whatever they produced. And they're, they've ended that, and they're trying to transition. What was happening up north and what was happening out west at the same time was this migration of people though, that were coming into, this, into the east and the like with different objectives and others were moving west. And they were moving with, with children and families in which there was a hell of a lot of difference with regard to relationships that were taking place at that time. So, I mean, this is a southern, I think it's strictly a southern thing that's, that's happening here. I, I, I myself don't, Bob. I think, no. I think what we're seeing is u more universal, that it's... You it's, think it's more? Yeah. Okay. But I want to try to get... I think it goes on in the north because in a, in a banking industry, it can be just as mechanical well, was, and, were, and people yeah. can be just as... I mean, what, one of my responses to Marcy, if money is your end and, or getting ahead, because yeah. that's not peculiar to the south, Right. That's a defining image of America as a country, and if 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 in the north there's, you've got an industrial banking right. um, culture, well, you, well, you got also. then what we're seeing is an image of what's going on there. I mean, certainly that's my way of presenting it. But I, but I want to go back to the question specifically because yeah. allow that there's respectability in the north and the south. Mm -hmm. Hemingway was a northerner. He grew up in a mm -hmm. in a in a Midwest town. Yeah. I know from Suzanne's experiences, and I know from my own, and I'm, and I know from people you know, just meeting them. The people coming out of Midwest towns or California towns, maybe liberal California, won't, I don't want to go there, but yeah, right. in Midwest towns, that you find the same strong sense of respectability anywhere you go. Yeah. And, and I just, I want to get to the root of that question here. Yeah. Wow. Um, I think it's more universal, but whether it is or not, I mean, if we can just stay with a book, where is Faulkner on this? 
What, what, um, you, you, it's like you don't acknowledge the evil in yourself and everyone else, and respectability covers, can cover that. Yeah, wow, so, we're back to the sacraments again, indirectly. Mm -hmm. But it, again, if, if you're not doing something to fight evil wherever you see it or wherever you're caught, then you're complicit in it. Yeah, and, it, and it's, what, it's a real question of, of self-knowledge or self-awareness. How much are you aware of that in yourself? And if you're not, mm -hmm. why do anything about it outside? I mean, you just, everybody lives that way. That's the way everybody lives. You go along with it. And he keeps saying people look behind their shades and they close their blinds. Yeah. He keeps repeating that as a mantra, Yeah. which is yeah. dark. <laughs> we've got to, sorry, we've got to leave because I, I, I told the people I've got to, I don't want to uh, make them late. We've got to pick up here, here, central questions for looking towards the end of the book. I, if, if we look at this in light of what I said, the modern, modern modernity is in problem. It's, 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 it's in a problem, a huge problem. It's an enveloping action. It's affecting the whole world. The West is central to whatever's going on. In the West, we're watching a culture that had a strong Christian tradition fading. And what we're watching in its place is this, dis, this what you call deracinated, uprooted. It's a man who lives in abstractions, who sets out to get something done with his industry and will. And, and we're watching that critiqued here because he has no sense of ties with other people. And what happens if you're raised in a culture where that's absent? What, between Gavin and Ratliff and Chick and Gowan, we're watching two young boys with two men learning to take responsibility for something together. Um, and slowly a town coming around. But where is Faulkner on this? What, I mean, if, if, if respectability is a, a good thing, but it, it can also be a cover for evil, what do you do? You, can, I can't see us taking it away. And <laughs> What does a Catholic do when a Catholic is both a part of that culture and also asked to stand outside of it? Let me leave it there. Where is Christ? Is Christ in this action? If he is where? We'll pick that up. This is a modern man we're looking at. That, that, that line of Io Snopes, she shouldn't get that money. You got that money because you were married to him? What an injustice. Uh, the view of marriage is central to this whole thing, and Eula's going to take her life in the next, so we're looking at some, something really dark in our world. Nope. Thank you. Yep, I do that. <laughs>